Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Thursday, December 7th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Andrew Leahy, a tax and technology attorney from New Jersey. In today's episode, we have Airgas defending the firing of a worker with cancer over a positive cannabis test. Texas's Ken Paxton claims federal government is funding tech to censor conservative views. And Column Tuesday on a Thursday and about the 1099K problem among the taxpaying public. Let's remember, an outfield with three of Aaron Judge, Juan Soto, Giancarlo Stanton, and Jason Dominguez is a pretty good outfield indeed. And read today's legal news. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. On this day in legal history, December 7th, the focus often turns to a pivotal event in United States history, the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. This surprise military strike by the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service against the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii led to the United States' formal entry into World War II. While primarily a military event, the attack had significant legal and political repercussions that reshaped the global legal landscape. The aftermath of Pearl Harbor saw a swift response from the U.S. government. On December 8, 1941, the United States Congress declared war on Japan, marking the nation's official entry into World War II. This decision not only changed the course of the war, but also had far-reaching legal implications for international relations and the conduct of war. One of the most controversial legal outcomes of Pearl Harbor was the internment of Japanese Americans. In February 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the forcible relocation and internment of about 120,000 Japanese Americans, two-thirds of whom were U.S. citizens. This order, rooted in wartime fear and prejudice, is now widely viewed as one of the most egregious violations of American civil liberties in the 20th century. The repercussions of Pearl Harbor extended to the international legal arena as well. The attack prompted a reevaluation of international laws concerning warfare, leading to the development of new standards and practices. After the war, the Tokyo Trials, formerly known as the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, were convened to prosecute Japanese leaders for war crimes, including those committed during the Pearl Harbor attack. In recent years, Pearl Harbor Day has been a time not only of remembrance for those who lost their lives, but also a moment to reflect on the legal and moral challenges faced during times of crisis. It serves as a reminder of the impact that pivotal events can have on the law, civil liberties, and international relations. Murray Fisher, a former employee of Airgas USA LLC who was diagnosed with liver cancer, is challenging his termination over a positive cannabis test result in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Fisher, who used legal hemp to manage his cancer-related pain, alleges that the positive test was false and that his firing constituted disability discrimination. The case centers around the honest belief rule, which protects employers from liability for employment actions based on incorrect information they reasonably trusted at the time. The lower court dismissed Fisher's discrimination claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act, citing insufficient evidence to prove that Airgas knew the test was incorrect or unreasonably relied on the results. Fisher's case raises questions about the application of the honest belief rule and whether judges are encroaching on factual determinations that should be left to juries. He argues that Airgas was indifferent to the accuracy of its drug testing and that there's evidence of purposeful ignorance on the company's part. 
Aragas, on the other hand, maintains that it made a reasonably informed decision to terminate Fisher and that he has failed to demonstrate his disability was a factor in his firing or to discredit the company's rationale for his termination. The case, which is being heard by a panel including judges Karen Nelson-Moore, David McKeague, and Raymond Kethledge, will provide the Sixth Circuit an opportunity to clarify the scope and application of the honest belief rule in employment discrimination cases. Fisher's argument hinges on the assertion that the evidence of his positive test result for THCA, not illegal THC, and the company's alleged indifference to test accuracy should preclude summary judgment in favor of air gas. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, along with conservative media companies The Daily Wire and The Federalist, has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of State. The lawsuit alleges that the State Department funded technology through grants to the Global Disinformation Index, or GDI, and NewsGuard, which the plaintiffs claim censors conservative news outlets. The lawsuit accuses these organizations of rendering, quote, disfavored press outlets unprofitable by using technologies that categorize them as high risk for disinformation, thereby impacting their revenue and social media visibility. The lawsuit challenges the State Department's statutory authority to fund such tools and argues that this funding infringes upon the media outlet's First Amendment rights. Paxton, who has filed numerous lawsuits against the Biden administration, claims the State Department is illegally attempting to silence dissenting voices. The case, assigned to Judge Jeremy Kernodal, a Trump appointee, reflects ongoing tensions between Republican state attorneys general and the Biden administration regarding the alleged censorship of conservative viewpoints online. NewsGuard responded by stating that their work with the department's Global Engagement Center, which accounted for less than 1% of its revenue, was limited to tracking false claims in state-sponsored media in Russia, China, and Venezuela, and unrelated to the plaintiffs. They also emphasized that their website reliability ratings are developed through an apolitical process. The case adds to a broader debate about the role of government in regulating online disinformation and the impact on free speech and media revenues. In my column this week, I discussed the IRS's recent decision to revert the 1099K reporting threshold from $600 to $20,000 for the current tax year, with a plan to lower it to $5,000 in 2024. I argue that this approach, aimed at reducing taxpayer confusion and administrative backlog, merely postpones the problem. The central issue lies in a widespread public misconception about taxable income, particularly the belief that income is only taxable if the IRS is aware of it. By way of a very brief background, Form 1099-K is a tax document used to report payments received through payment card transactions and third-party network transactions. This form is particularly relevant for businesses and individuals who receive payments through platforms like PayPal and Venmo. When payments for goods or services are received through these platforms, the platform is required to report the transactions to the IRS if they exceed a certain threshold. The 1099-K form provides a detailed summary of these transactions, helping taxpayers accurately report their income. It's an essential tool for ensuring compliance with tax laws, especially for those who engage in significant e-commerce or provide services where payments are frequently processed through these digital platforms. Importantly, though, receiving it does not impact whether taxes are owed. It is merely informational. Income tax is owed on all income from whatever source derived. I highlight the importance of educating the public on what constitutes taxable income, especially with the growth of the gig economy and online marketplaces. The 1099-K form, introduced in 2012, is designed as a reminder of existing tax obligations, not as an indication of new liabilities. The form's thresholds, such as the initial 200 transactions and $20,000 limit, are informational and do not determine when tax is due. To improve tax literacy, I suggest the IRS should adopt more proactive educational methods, such as creating informative videos, social media campaigns, and advertisements explaining what taxable income is. Additionally, introducing tax-related curricula into schools could inform young people about tax revenue uses and personal tax obligations. These measures could help address the knowledge gap, particularly among young taxpayers and those in the gig economy. 
I also emphasize the need for the IRS to demonstrate its commitment to ensuring high-income earners pay their fair share of taxes, as public perception of tax fairness is crucial. The IRS should focus on promoting an understanding of tax obligations, fairness in the tax system, and the shared responsibility of tax compliance. I critique the pattern of policy changes followed by public backlash and retraction as inefficient and ineffective in informing the public about tax policy updates. Properly addressing tax compliance and effectively communicating with taxpayers is vital for maintaining public trust and compliance in the tax system. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all the topics touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, you can find us on Mastodon on the ESQ.social instance. I'm at Andrew and my co-host Gina is at Gina. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it's certainly not legal advice. And reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we'd sure appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever it is you get your finely crafted podcasts. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email, newsletter, form. We'll see you back here tomorrow, and until then, ask yourself, is Rocky a Christmas movie?